Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. Let's Talk Loyalty is inviting you to come and join us to talk all about loyalty. We want to know what are the biggest challenges you face to capture the loyalty of your customers as we approach 2023. In partnership with Collinson, Let's Talk Loyalty is planning a live session on LinkedIn to talk about creating customer loyalty in the year ahead. I'm inviting all of you listening to share with me the burning questions and key topics you'd like to hear us cover in a live discussion simply drop me an email. It's paula at letstalkloyalty.com. Then we'll pick the most popular ideas and questions and talk them through on our Let's Talk Loyalty live event this November, powered by Collinson. My email address again is paula at letstalkloyalty.com. Please do send over your questions and ideas and then join us as we talk loyalty live together for the first time. Hello and welcome to episode 296 of Let's Talk Loyalty, a wonderfully engaging conversation about so many of the topics we love on this show, such as emotional loyalty, the role of community in creating loyalty, and the increasingly challenging role of delivering powerful environmental sustainability and governance for brands without being accused of greenwashing. My guest is Dr. Chris Arnold, who is the former creative director and board member for Saatchi and & Saatchi. And Dr. Chris has experience working with many of the UK's top 100 brands. He is also the co-founder of Connect2, who are leading specialists in business to community marketing and the author of Ethical Marketing and the New Consumer and another book called Flip, Unthink everything you know. Dr. Chris describes himself as proudly dyslexic. So I love talking with him to hear his views as someone who understands the principles of driving customer loyalty at a strategic level, based on a really deep understanding of human psychology and the principles of great marketing. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Chris Arnold. So, Dr. Chris Arnold, welcome back to Let's Talk Loyalty. Well, thank you for inviting me back. It's a great honor to be here. Great, great. You did a great job the first time, even despite the uh, the COVID situation. I know it was September 2020, huh? It was indeed, actually, yes. Uh, a few years have passed, haven't they? Indeed, yes. Doesn't feel like two years. But listen, I know you're a man of many talents and many ideas, uh, all of which we're going to get into today, or some of which we're going to get into today, let's say. So before we start talking about all of these fascinating marketing topics, as you know, we're always keen to know from our guests exactly what you admire and respect in the world of loyalty programs. So give us an update, Chris, in terms of what, what do you think is working in the world of loyalty right now? Well, I kind of looked at um, my own personal profile, really, and the family profile. And certainly for us, you know, things like Avios and Nectar, the two that are most commonly used in our family. But the one I think I most admire is actually the co-op in the UK, because 
for me, what is so good about it is it, it doesn't just work on the principle of you know, buy, get awards, get rewards for myself. It actually gives it to the community as well. And so half of what you get goes to the community and you can actually dedicate what you have to go to the community. So I think for a growing number of people who are becoming very conscious about things in society um, and causes, it allows us to divert that into helping other people. So for me, that's a winner every time. Yeah. And and I think I'm right, Chris. Um, again, I've never lived in the UK, but my understanding is the co-op has been around with this proposition for a long time. Like, it's not like it's something that they've just plucked out, you know, on top of a, you know, post-COVID zeitgeist or, you know, changing customer trends. This is a, a core, you know, mission and value of the co-op supermarket, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, the Cup has always been the most ethical supermarket. And of course, the big difference between it is not owned by large sort of investment companies or shareholders. It's owned by its own members being obviously a cooperative. And it's still very loyal to that. And therefore, it's a very community-based supermarket, which makes it very unique. And I think that's why it's always managed to take that very strong community mm-hmm. cooperation, cooperative mentality first, not one of profiting, where you look by contrast to the very big supermarkets and it all comes down to, will this make us money? Yeah. You know, and we see that in some recent surveys of ethics around supermarkets, for example, the co-op scored without doubt the best on on a Boston Matrix I was looking at the other day. Mm. And not surprising, the two biggest, uh, Tesco's and Sainsbury's, although they're getting the messaging right, they are actually underperforming massively on what they could be doing. Wow. Wow. And definitely that word community, I know, is very close to your heart. Um, Indeed. <laughs> we talked about a lot, a lot the last time in our in our conversation. So I suppose let's start there, Chris. You know, what do you think um, is happening in terms of the role of community um, for the audience listening to this show? As you know, we're, you know, focused on creating that experience where customers genuinely feel loyalty, uh, behave in loyal ways, hopefully change their behavior in a way that is profitable for the business. So I'd love you to touch on, you know, what what direction is the role of community going? I'm guessing we're going to say it's growing hugely, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So tell us what's happening. Well, I, I think there's obviously been a lot of uh, post-pandemic, although we haven't technically got past it, but post-pandemic in terms of you know, the real crisis period, that we saw certainly throughout the COVID lockdowns a massive growth in communities, both online and eventually afterwards offline. Mm. And we saw that sense of, you know, all together. Um, we have seen some of that dissipate, but we've also seen some of it maintained quite strongly that, you know, community has come very, very big. I think one of the very interesting trends is that um, recently one of the big management consultants um, who are trying to muscle in on marketing mm. just released a, a big report about we've gone through three areas of marketing and the third area is one we're going into, which is about community. It said, you know, we started off in a very broadcast mentality. We talked to everybody. Then we've gone through this area of focus, you know, deep focus. We can target the individual. Um, Not that actually, according to a lot of stats, produce better results. (laughs) And now they're saying, which is ironic, you know, I think someone said direct marketing, despite technology and everything else, is less effective than it was 30 years ago. Mm. Um, And I was doing a lecture the other day at Bournemouth University to students pointing out that the response rates on marketing is actually getting less and less and less um, compared to what they used to be. Yeah. But what we're seeing is, is so era one was very much as broadcast. Era two was we can target people. And we had an obsession with that, with data and technology. Yeah. And it's almost like we did it because we could do it. What they are saying, having looked at it from a very observational overview, and I think management consultants are better at that than we are because we're within the, you can say we can't see the wood for the trees, Yeah. is that they're saying, no, we're now going to the next stage, which is community. 
okay. we are talking we need to talk to communities um, online and offline and that mm. is quite powerful because I picked up on it and thought these guys are dead right and this is what we've been saying for years mm. but they really have put some thinking behind it so I think talking to communities is the big challenge how you talk to it is the even bigger challenge and mm. how do you get the communities to then talk about you within them becomes the third big challenge yeah. um, and I think the interesting thing about communities if you look at human loyalty I was talking to someone about this the other day. What are we loyal to, you know, outside mm. of marketing? We're very loyal to people. We're very loyal to causes. We're loyal to our beliefs. Almost mm. all those things become emotional. They're very emotionally okay. attached. When we say we're loyal to a brand, it tends to be very emotionally attached. Mm. Yet most loyalty schemes work on a rationality approach. It works on the idea I buy something, I get I'm awarded points, and then I get a reward for, for using those points. And some of those are very good. Nectar's fantastic at making that a very seamless transaction. Mm. Uh, my least favorite one, which is one of the petrol companies, makes it very painful. <laughs> um, so, and the app never works. <laughs> yeah. And we've seen that move from cars to apps. So, that is a very rational thing. And if there's any emotion, it's probably, there's not even enough to make it greed. You know, you, you just think, oh, I've got a few points, I'll cash it in. Yeah. But I think. One thing I see missing in a lot of these is the emotional engagement, the bit that really ties it in and the bit that links it through a community. I haven't yet come across a loyalty scheme where I feel I'm part of a community yeah. of that loyalty key. And I would like to see that. I'd like to see someone make that I'm really part yeah. of that community first. I'm emotionally yeah. engaged. So I think we need to move from a stop selling at people, stop being rational to yeah. engaging communities, being more emotional and mm. actually making people far, be, feel part of that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And you're absolutely right, Chris. Um, and, and on this show, I guess we, we would definitely, I suppose, strategically, um, you know, regularly acknowledge the move from transitional loyalty or transactional loyalty to emotional. So yeah. I think as as a strategy, um, the, the community of loyalty professionals, if I use the word of everyone listening to the show, I think everybody's very clear that that is the, the way it needs to go. Where I think we're struggling, Chris, and I do have one example, and I'd love to hear any you have. I think the question for most of us is how? How do you connect emotionally with people who are super busy, you know, resent probably a lot of the, you know, personalization that you alluded to yeah. earlier online, um, definitely much more cynical, rethinking all of our values, as you said, post-crisis pandemic period, so the only example, and I will kind of make sure that we link to it in the in the show notes. So one brand that spoke about this um, in a very passionate way, and we must get them back as well, was IKEA. And I yeah. think what, you know, a beautiful brand like IKEA has managed to do is realize that as much as they've got the beautiful showrooms, and we all love to go and see how they would suggest we design our homes, there's also, you know, a huge population of people who love to advise each other. So they did embrace this concept where, you know, they don't need to be the people saying this is how you use the, the furniture. So I think it's mainly done within maybe a Facebook context. I can't remember the execution, but to me, that was a brilliant insight because if I am kind of going to go, oh my God, I want to figure out my kitchen, I'd love to talk to other people about how they did theirs. So that's my favorite example. Do you do you have any favorite examples? Um, I think I think it's a good example in the sense that I, where I come back to certainly with community is that if you think what the word community means, it's unity through commonality, and that commonality tends to be very strongly when there's an emotional commonality. Yeah. So it's a cause, an interest, a passion, a belief. Now, if you take someone like IKEA, you can 
analyze that and say, well, what you've got is a group of people who are very passionate about interiors. They're passionate about yeah. how they express themselves through their homes and are very willing to share that. And therefore, you can create quite a, a good community around that and then obviously try and link that to your loyalty scheme. Yeah. Um, I think where I'm seeing a, a great opportunity is for brands to try and enter this space and find commonalities of, of interest that they can tap into. There's two ways of looking at it. Some brands say, oh, we'll create a community. The mm. worst way to do it is coming from a social media point of view, because most people will say that most groups of people on social media aren't necessarily communities, they're collectives. And okay. I was reading a very good report saying, don't collect people, connect with them instead. Nice. And it, and it was a criticism about um, supermarkets thinking that social media was the same as engaging with rural communities, and they're not. This was from Cambridge Department of Sustainability. Yeah. So it's a very credible source. And I think that's a very good philosophy that you can build, I mean, 100,000 people on Facebook is not a community. It's a collection of people. Yeah. It yeah. only becomes a community when that community starts to interact. So with the IKEA case, you mm. have people interacting with each other, advising people, and therefore you've got effectively what is building a community. Mm. I think the challenge for IKEA is how can you make the majority of the users actually feel part of that community because if you look at the IKEA card it's largely in the case this is happening with quite a few brands now like Tesco's mm. this is if you're a member of the of the scheme you get this price if you're not you get that price so it's mm. a two-tier pricing same as trade tends to have you know you can buy paint you get a different price from the consumer yeah and so a lot of them are going on this principle of being very discount led yeah um, and the two-tier pricing system and IKEA is very much so it's a two-tier pricing system you get the IKEA family price and you get the non like it family mm. price but to connect the two is a challenge i think therefore like linking into the i think what you've got to do is you have to start with the people first not with a brainstorm on a thursday afternoon as I, have to say. <laughs> I mean there's nothing shallower than a, than a thursday afternoon brainstorm using oh. the pr department going mm, let's do this and we'll go out and we'll have this wonderful idea and it hasn't been thought through it hasn't been checked you yeah. have to go into the community so yeah last week we were working with a, a retail brand and they're launching their new store they want to engage the community and they know that by engaging the community they will develop more loyalty mm. more emotional contact between them and the consumers in this area where they've got five competitors so okay. we went into that community we talked to people we met people we've mm. been engaging with people and there's not a shortcut for that you know you just got to yeah. really get down there and roll your sleeves up and sometimes yeah. jump on the train totally um, especially if it's geographically based. Um, if it's other areas, you've got to get into it. So I think the key thing is start with people. Don't start with an, a kind of you know distant viewpoint from the top of the tower. It's yeah. only when you get close to people. And one of the criticisms that's been leveled at a lot of brands at the moment is that they've been so obsessed with data and other things that they're losing touch with the consumer. Yeah. You know, they've almost forgotten what a consumer is. This is very true in the world of, of uh, sustainability and purpose, which I work a lot in. Yeah. Um, that they are forgetting that there's a consumer out there. Yeah. And interesting, I was chatting with a guest last week, Chris, and she said exactly this, that, you know, every manager, senior manager, you know, even the board should be picking up the phone and speaking to five customers every week. Yeah. You know, like that level of, um, you know, staying grounded, I think is, as you said, totally undervalued. You know, we know the, the scalable approach in terms of doing surveys and there's always a way to do it more efficiently. But I think you miss the nuance, which is what I'm, I'm hearing you're saying, is yeah. that when you genuinely care, people, first of all, feel that. I think that's yes. actually <laughs> something that we miss is that they notice. And then once they notice, you get something that you can almost even, I suppose, 
those evolve the thinking to make sure that the the nuance is clearly articulated, I guess, and translated into something that will work at the grassroots level. And you use the language. I mean, the area that a lot of brands obviously focused on at the moment is purpose, sustainability. Um, Personally, I'm suggesting we should get rid of that word sustainability and just sort of, you know, a socially conscious brands is a much better term to say you're socially conscious, which is what people use. Mm. Um, it's only it's it's a CSR language sustainability, and a recent survey revealed that the vast majority, like massive, like eighty two percent of people, don't understand what it really means. Um, and although they thought it has associations, and when they surveyed a load of CEOs, most of them thought it just meant environmentalism. But if you look at the SDGs, mm. Sustainable Development Goals, they are about everything. In fact, environment is only about a quarter of it. You know. The rest is about humanity. Where brands can connect as well in the growing awareness of consumers who are becoming more conscientious. And this is across all the board. There's a bit of a myth that Gen Zs are the most conscientious. That is not true. They may be slightly more aware, but when it comes to practice, it's actually the over 45s, which are hugely more practicing it and have huge loyalty to brands that actually are practicing what they preach. Yeah. The Gen Z generation from local research that's just coming out has shown that they they are they're very aware. They talk mm-hmm. about it a lot, but mm-hmm. actually the talk doesn't always translate into the walk. Partly because of financial. Yeah, they're very trend orientated at that age. So therefore, if the trend is to buy something very e- eco ethical, then yes, they'll do it. But mm-hmm. if the trend is to wear a certain outfit, they won't care about where it comes from. It's just that's the cool thing to wear. <laughs> the the other thing as well is just very key is that. With with their loyalty, they're not very loyal. Gen Zs are not a very loyal group of people. They yeah. will jump ship very, very quickly. And that's part of the way that people develop. When you get mature, you tend to become more loyal to things because you've tried and tested things. And yeah. you'll find that among car buyers. You know, you get to the 445 plus and they're more likely to buy the same brand of car. Whereas at, at a very young age, you'll buy whatever you can get your hands on. Mm. and move through different cars. And I think you do find as you get older, you become more law. So we're seeing a massive amount of loyalty being created by sustainability issues and about how uh, these values are being projected. But there's a really big problem that's happening here is that a lot of the agenda around uh, ethics is being driven not by marketing, who tend to be more interfacing with the customer, Mm. but by CSR and corporate comms, who's interfacing with the shareholder. So yeah. what you see is what works for the shareholder doesn't always work for the consumer. Wow. And a good example is net zero. A lot of research is showing that net zero does not resonate with consumers for three reasons. One, they think it's jargon. Mm-hmm. Two, they think it's greenwash. Yeah. And third, they don't even understand it in many cases. <laughs> and third <laughs> is most of the targets, like one supermarket was, we're, we're going to be net zero by 2040. And you go, well, that's 18 years. And as one person yeah. in research said, we'll all be extinct by then. Yeah. So, you know, and uh, BXG, who are a company who evaluate businesses, they worked out that one of the supermarkets was losing potentially £5 billion a year because they got their ethical messaging wrong to the consumer. That's a big cost. Wow. Wow. And it comes back to, for me anyway, Chris, I'd be interested in your opinion, but to me, it comes back to the principle of integrity. Indeed. Integrity is the reason I got into loyalty. Like I was thrilled to find a brand at the time. It was O2 in Ireland. And, you know, I think that's still, you know, working extremely well with the priority program in the UK. But certainly, you know, what I loved was that here was a brand who genuinely wanted to 
give back to the customer. Yes, they had a churn issue. Yes, they had shareholders and there was commercial pressure. But, you know, certainly the marketing people, we did everything we could to make sure that people felt that we appreciated them. And I think that's an important distinction you've just made, that if you're focused purely on the shareholders, it's just a box ticking exercise. Oh, yeah. I mean, the term um, token uh, tick boxing is something that's going around, you know, and it's like uh, a lot of these eco um, certificates are what we call badges on the wall. And token mm. tick boxing is becoming very common. Yeah. I think you're right. There's a big difference in companies who say it and there's companies that believe it. And there are mm. certainly companies, even some of the more established ones, where there are groups of people within, and O2 is a very good example, actually, of where people are very passionate and they're allowed to have their voice and they're being allowed to rise to the top and actually dictate. Yeah. And, uh, influence the agenda. But there's a lot of companies where you've got a group of very passionate people within them, um, across all the ages, by the way, um, mm. that actually are not being listened to or being pushed down and, and not allowed to have a voice. And those are the companies which are most likely to be threatening themselves for the future. Because I think there's no doubt mm. about it that as Gen Z is certainly aware, as they get older, they are going to become very, very keen on becoming mm. the next, you know, hardcore ethical consumer group. Yeah. And I guess the reason that many companies, you know, haven't maybe allowed that voice to arise is maybe it's just not, you know, sufficient awareness around the commercial costing. I mean, you just quoted a huge number there, Chris, mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, getting the, the messaging wrong, um, you know, specifically around, I think you said environmental or certainly ESG. Um, yeah, ESG, yeah. Yeah. So around the whole area. So I almost feel like, you know, those um, marketeers who are clear on the commercial priority, perhaps don't have the evidence, don't have the language, don't have the seniority to really convince the C-suite and the leadership team that this is the reality and that their future is reliant on it. Like it's a bit doomsday-ish, you know, it's it's quite dramatic. And, and clearly you and I agree on this, but I do think, you know, a lot of CFOs are sitting there going, oh, you know what, we'll worry about it once we've, you know, got through the GDPR crisis or the COVID yeah. crisis or, do you know what I mean? It's not that they're bad people. It's just that they've got so much else to worry about that this becomes a lower priority. It's true. I mean, someone said 10 years ago, the average CEO might have spent half a day worrying about ESGs, as we call them now, uh, environmental, social and governance. Yeah. Nowadays, it can be three days a week. Um, and because some of this is legislation, some of this is regulation, some of this is requirements. For example, if you want to be retail your product through certain distri distribution networks like supermarkets and online, mm -hmm. they require you to meet certain certifications, even if they're not legal. So they're constantly having to make sure they get things right. And there's a lot of focus at the moment on supply chain, for example, and and retailers going, well, we want to make sure, make sure you're not getting involved in slavery and exploitation and pollution, all the rest. Mm -hmm. So they are more focused on it. The interesting thing is, whereas E, partly environmental, is fairly well sorted in the sense there's a lot of legislation, a lot of regulations that they can abide by, they know what they're doing, and most CSRs are quite clued up on it. The mm. S is the mystery area for them. They don't really know. We've talked to quite a lot of brands, um, uh, about 100 last year, we surveyed looking at CSR and marketing. Mm. And most of them really don't really know how to put the finger on it, on the S bit and the societal bit. You know, what is we should be doing in society? You know, should we just be given to food banks? Should we be given to charities? Should we be creating our own projects? Mm. So that is an area that is quite a loss for them at the moment. They're scratching their heads trying to work out not only what they should be doing, how do they measure it? There's no Lovely. real measure for yeah. return on purpose at the moment. You know, very little out there to judge, to, to really know if it's successful or not. 
But surely that's the opportunity, particularly for a loyalty program, which, Mm. you know, requires people to identify themselves, behave in certain ways, they get rewarded. So, So I think what I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but... What I often feel like is that the ESG uh, mandate might sit in a different area of the business to the loyalty team. So there's the problem of the siloed structure. Whereas what I'm thinking, you know, if I'm, you know, sitting, uh, you know, now as a loyalty director, you know, it's probably the opportunity to, 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 to work across the business more broadly, you know, say, look, you've got this mandate, I've got this audience, you know, let's put our heads together and combine our skills to make sure that you can deliver on that business mandate, but using the tools that the loyalty industry has been evolving for the last 40 years. Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, if you start looking at your customer base, you can very quickly start to profile them and find out what their interests are. Mm. If you, we always say, you know, that there's a balance between people and planet to simplify the E's and S's. And <laughs> we, like we did a test actually where we um we had an event where we put wine on on two uh, trays, <laughs> and one they're exactly the same wine. One was all about this wine is doing great to save the planet. This one's doing great to save the people. Yeah. And two thirds of the people took the people one. Nice. And despite the fact that we are very conscious of environmentalism. Just you know, we got we just had a big case here in the UK. We've got numerous groups running around protesting about the environment, um, yeah. making a lot of noise, causing a lot of disruption, upsetting a lot of people, mm. uh, and probably from a marketing point of view, not doing it right because they're just annoying people, not actually getting the message across. Yeah. And no politicians will talk to any of them. Um, we do know that that's very high on the agenda, but we also know that when it comes to societal things, which are more emotional and more tangible for the consumer, they are very high up. So you mm. might have, you know, BP has another oil spill, kills lots of wildlife. Yes, that's terrible. Or lots of nasty oil everywhere. But mm. BP has got a sweatshop. Wow, you'll get a kickback. And when you look at company like Boohoo, who are a fashion retailer, very much into the Gen Z group, actually, mm. um, got caught out the other year during the pandemic with sweatshops, not in Bangladesh, but in England. And those sweatshops were not only underpaying people, exploiting people, wow. and they weren't even safe in the, you know, they weren't even having masks. The backlash was massive. They lost half their share value overnight. Wow. The influencers jumped ship, their customers jumped ship, and they took a while to rebuild themselves back up. But wow. they got a massive kicking for it. Now, I don't think if they'd been seen as un, you know, negative on the environmental front, they would have seen anything like that. So people is really big. So my advice to all marketing directors, especially in Lottie, is find mm-hmm. out what your customers are interested in. In fact, find out what they're loyal to in the in the aspects of society and environmentalism. And mm-hmm. when you look into that, you need to dig deeper to find out what aspect, because there's many subdivisions. Yeah. And then, I mean, some companies are starting to look at the SDGs, which are 17, but then they break down into more, so it ends up about 90. But find out what customers are really interested in. That's what you can key into, and that can create a very strong emotional link. Yeah. If they can see you're generally concerned about that, and possibly the reward program can yeah. actually be allowed to further help whatever it is you're yeah. targeting. Yeah. And, and I will make sure that we link to the sustainable development goals, Chris, in the show notes as well, because, you know, I've had uh, even some friends again who are taking action just personally because they want to show up in a different way in the world. And we're looking for ideas on how to do that. And to mm-hmm. me, the thinking's been done in terms of what, what the problems are that globally could be and should be prioritized. So again, for, for anybody who wants to, you know, convince maybe senior management on what 
they're going to hang their hat on. I think when you do align to something that's had that depth of of thinking, um, yep. I think that's a, a really good approach, yeah? I, I think there's, I mean, more because up until now, ESGs have been quite hard to evaluate, but they are becoming more attempts to evaluate them. I think companies, especially at CEO level, are realizing that there is a cost to doing it badly. We've yeah. seen a, a bit of a backlash against this fad for purpose, you know, when writing purpose statements. Mm. What has amazed me is how wrong most of them got it, partly because they went to the wrong people. Not surprisingly, their ad agency said, oh, we can do this. Their PR agency says, we can do this. And I spoke to several experts in the marketplace like myself saying, well, actually, why didn't they come to us? because it was easier to do it that way. And they didn't think of how important it was to get it right. And now there's a kind of purpose 2.0 of everybody now redoing their purposes and realizing that they got it wrong. Yeah. Um, talking to Gen Z, they are very, very untrusting now of brands making ethical claims, purpose claims. They yeah. just don't believe them. And it takes a lot to convince them. I don't think they're unique. This yeah. research I've just seen on Gen Zs and a lot of Gen Zs. But I think it's probably true across all age groups that we've become so greenwashed and purpose washed now yeah. that we just don't trust them. And of course, social media is very quick to say, ah, oh, but, you know, this yeah. big brand is telling you this, but this is the truth. Yeah. I think when you look at the SDGs, you can be very good in one or two areas, but inevitably you're going to fail somewhere else. So it can be a bit of an unfair thing. But mm. uh, there's a lot of brands out there, you know, P&G, Unilever, striving very hard to be more ethical and be seen so. Yeah. Um, but there's always that danger that, you know, you, you, you're you so focused over here, you forget, you know, <laughs> you've, got, you've got slavery going on over here, you know. <laughs> Clearly not something that you would imagine anyone would actually not notice or forget. It's quite bizarre it's, it's, how that unfolded. Yeah. Well, that's because the, the the problem we find in companies is the silo mentality. Yeah. So what you see is you've got these, this silo mentality going on mm. and CSR and corporate comms are not necessarily communicating very well with marketing. Yeah. You know, when we surveyed 100 companies for an article for campaign, we found out the vast majority of they weren't really talking to each other. We mm. had a couple of good examples like um, Direct Line, where Mark Evans, who's head of marketing, was very much working very closely with the head of CSR. Mm. And therefore, there was a very good relationship there. But we got a lot of companies where we're saying, no, we don't, we don't think on the same level. We have different values, yeah. you know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, competing priorities. Yeah. yeah. And again, we're all busy and we're all trying to do what we're working on as best we can. But as you said, if you take your eye off the ball, unfortunately, you will be called out in this, you know, uh, current climate, I guess. So I guess my next question um, was around this Gen Z, Chris, because as you said, you've had lots of wonderful research and I'm dying to hear any other insights that you can share. So I do think this idea that, yes, probably more vocal, I, I definitely agree that yep. I've heard a lot of um, well-intentioned um, arguments and, and, you know, convincing happening. As we've said, the behavior doesn't always follow. And the only research I've seen, I think, from a loyalty perspective would be the YouGov research, which, again, I'll make sure that we link to in the show notes. And just generally, it said what you referred to earlier, Chris, which is, you know, older people, more mature, um, having been through a couple of cycles and, you know, I suppose, understand how the world works. And maybe actually, you know, I have my own theories on this, but tend to be more loyal to brands. And I think that's perhaps just because, you know, there is a spend that is worth tracking and, you know, you'll get something out of it, whether it's the household budget with the groceries, for example. 
Whereas Gen Z sometimes just don't have the spending power. So they're not the frequent flyers. They're not going to be likely to get a huge amount um, of rewards. So as a result, there's the cynicism, as you said, around ESG and making sure that that's really what a brand is standing for. There's cynicism around loyalty because they're just not seeing the point and it just doesn't seem to be resonating. So what else are you hearing or any tips that you've got in terms of driving loyalty with this essential you know, demographic of up and coming consumers? Well, I, I think the first thing is that the, the the term Gen Z is an incredibly broad term. It's like talk, saying music, you know, is that broad. <laughs> yeah. Um, we worked with one client and we had a breakdown of 140 different groups within that Gen Z. Oh, my God. Right. Now, of the kind that the media like to talk to, they represent only about, I think it was about 7%. Okay. But every generation, you know, if you go back to, you know, to your grandfather's days, you know, the teddy boys and the mods and all that, you know, uh, you go back to a little bit later punks in the street. Now, media would have us believe during the 70s that every person was running around as a punk with a big weird hairdo. Yeah. And they weren't. It was a very, very small percentage of people. It was the same during the 60s with the the hippies and everything. These are always very small groups of people. Yeah. The vast majority of people throughout history tend to just be quite ordinary. And mm-hmm. there was a gap survey done with um, Google Street Mapping that looked at people and it realized that most people are ordinary. Now, because I'm doing some teaching down at Bournemouth University on the MA course in advertising, and I teach creative strategy. Mm. Um, what is very interesting is you see some of the stuff you get from the colleges, and we've worked with the NUS as well in the past, so we've got a lot of insight. The vast majority of people aren't much different from the last generation, the last generation, the last gen- generation. Mm-hmm. They tend to be quite ordinary. Also, yeah. we're seeing more people coming from other countries. So it's interesting to see the global spread. Mm. So one group I was teaching the other day, we had uh, probably nine different countries there. So it was very interesting. But there was some commonality and some difference. When I talked to them about ethics and environmentalism, there was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you take, put your hands up, who thinks it's really important? Yes. They'll tick the band. They're very good at filling out surveys and going, you know, we're passionate yeah. about this. Yeah. That's the, that is the, the, the misdirect the that we see. Yeah. <laughs> so most surveys go out there and they go, we know what to say. Yeah. Now, what then happens is when you say, okay, now tell me some evidence you've done this. And they go, ah, oh, um, actually, uh, so do you shop at this brand, which is not very ethical, or do you shop at this brand? Oh, we shop at that brand. Why? Well, it's cheap. Yeah. You know, uh, why do you go there? Oh, because it's fashionable. But do you yeah. ask about, is that fashionable ethical? Well, we don't care. Yeah. So although yeah. they will tell you they care, and although they will tell you that they're in, this is important, the reality is the conversion into action is much poorer. Yeah. When you get to the over 45s, you'll find the conversion to action is very high. Yeah. You know, so there's a, there's a difference in that gap. And that yeah. measurable gap is quite important. Um, this is the same with lots of different areas of marketing. Mm. You know, intent converted into action. You know, yeah. we talk a lot about that, you know, well, why yeah. did they intend to buy, but they didn't actually buy? Mm. I think with the Gen Z, there's two things which are quite influential on them. One is fashion. Mm-hmm. You know, they are fashion led. It's just part of how our brains are at that age. We are pack animals. We tend to follow the herd. Mm-hmm. And you see it in college. You look around and everyone's wearing pretty much the same clothes. You know, sure. all the tutors dress differently, but all the kids are dressed. You can spot a tutor a mile off because yeah. they're dressed independently. And the kids are all like, oh, they're all wearing the same outfit, you know. Um, <laughs> and they're all pretty much doing the same thing. So there's a lot of that kind of pack behavior. And there is an opportunity in this because for brands to tap into developing the pack behavior is a very good way of moving people into the right area because you can mm. trade off that. And one one group that has done that very successfully is the Vegan Society that's made veganism very trendy. Yeah. Uh, that 
kind of works. Previous year, they had a lot of people went vegan January, mm-hmm. gave up all within 10 days because it's not very easy being vegan. Um, <laughs> and then there's also a lot of health issues about it. And then this year, hardly anybody did it. And when I asked them why not, they said, well, that was last year's fashion. Oh, so wow. the danger can be if you do get fashionable that it goes out of fashion. And then they said, well, actually, we've discovered a lot of bad things about it. So now they're getting very informed. Now, I will say one thing about Gen Zs. They are very good at being informed. They are quite good at interrogating. So mm. when a brand makes a claim, they are very good at interrogating it. They have the access, they have the will, and they will dig. And their networks are often very quick for sharing that. So if a company comes up and says, oh, we're just launching this wonderful, super ethical product X. Yeah. Dozens of them will suddenly go and dig around and suddenly come back, yeah, but product X <laughs> isn't telling you this. Yeah. So marketers beware as yeah. they say in the X Factor, the truth is out there and it damn well is. <laughs> so totally. you know, some people have been caught very quickly, you know, when they've made a quick announcement and then quickly had to withdraw that. Yeah. And you take, take something like, for example, we tested the uh, supermarkets claim that uh, Sainsbury's had a post drop that said we're going to be net zero by 2040. So mm. we gave it to the students and said, what do you think of this? And they went, this is shocking. So, okay, tell us. Mm. I said, well, we're all going to be extinct by then. And he said, well, this isn't a commitment. This is an excuse. You know, 18 years, there are brands out there already net zero. Yeah. And this is only, and why can't they be net zero within five years? I mean, they they all understood it's not an easy process for some, Mm. but they were saying, why can this not be now? You know, where's the effort? Why are they not saying, okay, we can do this and then this and then this, we can do stages. That is what politicians say when they don't want to do anything. Yeah. And they also, I mean, the ad itself got ripped apart by the the ad people because they said it was a terrible ad anyway. But irrespective of that, they really did not believe that was a claim that was credible. But the mm-hmm. really bad news for Sainsbury's was that ad made them think less of Sainsbury's. It actually turned up against Sainsbury's. They wow. said, this is a company that is not committed. However, you go and read the CSR side of Sainsbury's, they generally believe this is the way forward. Yeah. So there's a massive disconnect. I talk yeah. a lot to brands about values disconnect. And values disconnect is what happens when you're talking about one thing and the consumer's mm-hmm. in another area and they're just not connecting. Mm. What marketing's frustration is that it sees a lot of CSR and corporate comms driven strategy. And bear in mind, these guys often sit higher up on the pecking order in the company, yeah. often sitting on the board when marketing doesn't. Yeah, They are driving this agenda that then is handed to marketing who says, marketing, go and sell this. You know, mm. We're all about net zero. And marketing's going, uh, it doesn't align. Marketing starts from the consumer and says, what are the values the consumer holds? How can we align with those? Yeah. So you've got this massive crash in the middle where CSR and corporate comms gender tends to create a massive values disconnect mm-hmm. and where marketing is looking to have values engagement. And yeah. therefore, you, what you're happening is not only you're getting disconnect, but you're getting distrust mm. and you're also getting a fact that you're losing the emotional connectivity between your brand. So you could actually be trashing your brand in the process. So yeah. in some cases, going down the purpose and the ESG route has done more damage to brands. Yeah. And let's be honest, part of our loyalty is an emotional trust issue. You know, do we trust them? Yeah. I'm very loyal to my brand of guitars. You'll see yeah. some in the back here. Nice. I'm very loyal to maybe my brand of car. Mm. And we see a lot of people are very loyal to brands. And that is built out of trust. And some of them are killing it, absolutely killing it. So on the other level of loyalty, they're destroying the emotional brand loyalty. Yeah. 
I think what I'm hearing is the importance of testing the messaging um, and yeah. because there's no easy answers uh, for sure. Um, you know, you know, I think some brands have gone about it, you know, in a, you know, more understated way to, you know, show progress. Um, that could also trigger frustration, I guess. So, yeah, I think brand by brand, it's important, as you said, go out and check the values, see which of these big topics you're going to hang your hat on and, you know, exactly what kind of messaging and where the role of loyalty again comes into that so that um, there's a more, more coherent strategy um, across what's happening because, yeah, pretty scary. It can do more harm than good sometimes. Yeah, I think it also opens up a new area of free thinking. We talked about, you know, the idea of non-transactional loyalty. Mm. Um, but transaction doesn't have to be about money. It can be about actions. So yeah. I think you, there's the opportunity to create loyalty, which is about you take an action, it delivers a benefit. You get totally. a benefit. Someone else gets a benefit. And I think there's a great opportunity yeah. to do that. Um, for example, you know, coffee shops. I worked with um, Starbucks many years ago, and we were working with the idea of, you know, encouraging people to go out and do things in the community and get rewarded for that. Lovely. You know, yeah. so the reward was the action, not buying the coffee. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I think it's far better to go down that route. And there is a, there's an organization called Investors in Community um, mm. started a couple of years ago. And they've been very much about this idea of trying to get people to invest in doing stuff in the community and therefore getting a kind of payback through yeah. points that then improves their CV and their job opportunity. But for companies, it improves the image because the company can clock up lots of points yeah. through their staff doing actions. Yeah. So, that also makes the staff more loyal to their cut to their own organizations. It makes customers more loyal to people they're helping. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a great opportunity to be looking at it sort of with fresh eyes. Uh, yeah. I just be, I just did a presentation last week called Rethink How We Think About Thinking. Yes. Uh, which is part of a new series of training exercise um workshops I'm doing actually, one of which is called Think Like a Dyslexic. Okay. So um, that's our our next topic, but just to finish on the last one, Chris, I did do an interview and again, I'll make sure to link to it in the show notes um, in India. Uh, phenomenally impressive guy with a program that, that does exactly what you've said, where they identify at a local level, and these are generally rural communities where, yep. you know, particularly younger people are identifying things they can do. They're being incentivized to do that. It's at least being measured tra and tracked. And it might be as simple as an internship or going and, I don't know, shopping for an elderly neighbor. But the whole point was to build a social profile which would improve their future employability and credibility but again, done at a rural level and all based on WhatsApp, like the entire yep. program. And, and last time I checked, I think there was over a million people on it, Chris. It was absolutely That's cool. amazing. I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, if we, if we drill down to the granular level, loyalty is about keeping people loyal to your brand and your customers loyal because yeah. at the end of the day, it makes more sense, you know. And sometimes that gets distracted into seeing it as a process. I yeah. think one has to sometimes rethink how you're looking at it and come back to the basics and go, actually, mm. we're in a different world now and we're totally. definitely going to go into a different world in the future. Yeah. And therefore, we may want to think about it in a completely different way, look at it from another point of view. And this is what you know, yeah. I'm trying to teach people to do at the moment. Amazing. Well, I saw one stat, first of all, on your LinkedIn, Chris, which I'm going to just quote, and then you can tell us to, you know, how we can think like a dyslexic, because I'm definitely fascinated. And the statistic you shared was that 50% of the people who work at NASA are actually dyslexic. Indeed. And that, I think, is just incredible because I know you're dyslexic and you see it as a superpower. Um, and I yep. think there is a positioning piece that um, certainly you're leading the charge. You've convinced me two years ago that it is a superpower. <laughs> 
So tell us, you know, the value of thinking like a dyslexic as you do. Well, I mean, one of the interesting stats as well is there's a very, very high number of entrepreneurs are dyslexic um, and in fact, billionaires, high percentage of billionaires are dyslexic. A lot of the, the problem-solving people, the, the innovators, the inventors, artists, uh, general um, across the whole area, entrepreneurs, business and everything, you find a very, very high level of dyslexia, also mixing with ADHD, which I am also as well. Okay. NASA started employing dyslexics because they found they were very good at two things. One, seeing a problem in a different way. Mm-hmm. And second was, and as well as solving that problem, was actually that they could connect the, uh, the dots in new ways. So they could see opportunities that others couldn't see. Yeah. So one of the things we do now is they're fantastic problem solvers. Companies need problem solvers. Yeah. Uh, I think it's Baines came up with a stat that 82% of problems in a business are never solved. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, that may be a small <laughs> problem that hardly anyone notices, but it, you yeah. add all that up, and that contributes yeah. to an inefficient company. You know, it's like having you know, a watch has many cogs, but if every little cog is not quite running properly, the the clock yeah. starts losing time. Mm. What they tend to do is companies focus on the two big cogs and they'll look at the 15%. And they said about half of those are actually not that well solved anyway. So the problems aren't necessarily satisfactory. And that's a problem solving is one of our big aspects. Um, connecting the dots, seeing opportunities. Um, we always say we think in 3D, where most people think in 2D. And certainly your, your average bureaucrat, which we'd call neurolinear, tends to be very two-dimensional. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we tend to be much more three-dimensional and therefore we're able to, to see things in a kind of strange way of linking things and that's very common among dyslexics which is why they're quite good at inventions and uh, quite good in technology areas or quite good at business because they just see those opportunities. Um, also we have an ability to look at things in a fresh different way and I've always found that interesting that when everyone's talking in a very mm. straight way I might say well have you looked at it from this angle you looked from this angle and there's a thing I teach called dice theory which is if you look at a dice you can see three faces that's the maximum yeah. you can see at once. Um, but you know there are six. Mm. So you're looking for the three you can't see. And I train a lot of people who don't think naturally like us to look for those other three. Mm-hmm. And that makes enormous difference because if you your mind stops at three, oh, I've had three ideas, that's enough. But you say, no, I want the other three you haven't seen, but you know are there. Yeah. And we, we've, we've had three training programs we've been working with clients, and it really came out to the fact that I realized that often clients themselves need some help in the way they, they think. Because mm. yeah, you you come from an industry that's very creative. We're yeah. asking clients to, to 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 take unusual routes. The new routes is scary. Mm. So we started doing training programs, and I did loads of searches where we train clients to think much broader and more openly and less fearful. And we challenge fear as one of the big things we do. And the difference was they bought the ideas, you know, without problems. They were able to write better briefs. Yeah. Rather than settling there and accepting clients in a kind of what often becomes very neurolinear because most corporates are very neurolinear in their approach. And it's very process driven, mm. very, you know, you have to seek this box. We got them to think outside the box. And oh, do I hate that cliche? <laughs> but it, <laughs> so we, we, we created one called dimensional thinking, which helps them think from 2D to 3D. We developed a thing called birdcage, which is the idea that, you know, there's no point teaching a bird to fly. All you need to do is take away the cage. And yeah. most of us, we take away the barriers, fly. And then there's flip, which is part of a book I've yet to publish, but it's almost finished now. Okay. That was going to be published in the pandemic but due to pandemic didn't and that is again getting people to look at things from fresh ways and looking at things you know back to front inside out new yeah. ways of looking at things we brought that together and we normally thought let's call it a thing like a dyslexic because i'm very big into the neurodiverse re- area at the moment and there's a lot of interest in neurodiversity mm-hmm. but the good thing is that people are recognizing that within companies 
neurodiverse people are often a major talent that can be tapped into. Totally. Yeah, the problem still is HR most are stuck in, in the old well of seeing the disability and the disadvantage. Totally. Whereas actually senior management are looking for the advantage. They're looking for the Richard Branson. They're looking for the Einstein. They're looking for the James the, the mm. Dyson. Yeah, they're looking for those mindsets. Yeah. And they want to cultivate those. And we said, well, okay, we can do that. And there's a lot of charities doing and groups doing stuff around awareness. But we said, what if we can tap into that talent? But more importantly, what if we can help the rest of the talent, yeah. the, the 80% who aren't dyslexic, <laughs> how can we help them think a bit more like we can? Yeah. Because it, yeah. wouldn't that help the company better, you know, rather than having this big gap? And we yeah. tested that out and people said, wow, nobody's thought of it that way around. We said, well, of course they wouldn't. That's because we do. <laughs> <laughs> so that- I've had a massively good response. However, yeah. <laughs> I pitched this to a company last week. And the head of sales said, great, I want to put my salespeople on this course. This is fantastic, really brilliant. Yeah. And he went to HR and HR said, oh, uh, no, no, we can't do that because we're already tied up with this charity that does neurodiversity. He said, it's nothing to do with neurodiversity in that sense. This is getting my team to think like super thinkers. Yeah. And she couldn't see beyond that. She saw the word dyslexic and said, oh, no, we have a contract with this charity that does all our awareness of neurodiversity and helping to create a better environment for neurodiverse people. I said, it's not the same thing. Yeah. You know, and it's frightening when you get people who like that. <laughs> so you had to go back and said, yeah. I've got this new course I want to sell you, which is, Think dimensionally, and they go, "Oh yeah, okay, we'll sign that one off." <laughs> so <laughs> but, I don't but know. I do think it's important distinction, at least for me, Chris. You know, because the 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 Richard Bransons of the world, you know, there's there's a very clear role for them, and you know, they're taking responsibility for creating value in their own way, rather yep. than compromising a corporation. Like I'm thinking banks, and you know, you know that the, it's a very different culture. So. I guess I was just really impressed by the idea that, you know, an organization like NASA with, you know, the the essential factors of reliability and consistency to me is counterintuitive to thinking differently, like that I would have thought that the structures and systems would serve NASA, whereas what you're saying is actually, no, we need the problem solving much more importantly. So I guess that's why that that statistic impressed me even more than the Mm. Entrepreneurial Association, because I can be entrepreneurial and, you know, not that many people will be upset if, you know, it all comes crashing down around me because it's my business. You know, I can do what I want. Yeah. In in this case, talk about space flight and exploration. Yeah. I mean, they're not the only organization. GCHQ hires a lot of dyslexics. And ever since Alan Turin of the Second World War became the big code breaker, he was Mm. dyslexic, probably autistic as well. But they were hiring a lot of people. They found out a lot of people are very good at code breaking because we're very good pattern thinkers. Okay. Um, We're actually uh, dyslexic. And so they they recruit quite a lot of technology companies now and innovation sectors recruit dyslexic. Some recruit um, autistic, but in a very different field. So they both have their skills, but very different. Mm. Um, What is interesting, though, is if you look into these companies, a lot of them are doing this around the basis of psychometric profiling. Okay. Now, for those not familiar with psychometric profiling, this is where people, a lot of the big companies do this. They look at the different profiles of people's mindsets. They look at the team and say, what makes the best team? Mm. Now, uh, for example, I run a number of agencies. Um, and when we looked at it, we said, we've got a lot of good creative minds here, <clears throat> but who's going to make things happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who's going to do all the legal stuff? Who's going to do the finances? So yeah. I can't have creative people doing that. Well, not unless I want to cook the books. So <laughs> I then have to employ people who are on the opposite scale of psychometric profiling. So where we are the big 
big picture thinkers, the creatives, the innovators, the problem solvers, connecting yeah. the dots. I actually need people who don't do that. I need people who are very neurotypical, who yeah. like process, who can understand reading through a 20-page form, can fill out complicated you know, mm. stuff. And then I also need people who can then run the company. So I need people who've got, you know, a combination of big picture thinking, but are, are very driven along the ideas of making tough decisions and getting the business running, like the MD. So mm. you might have us in one side. We'll have mm-hmm. the neuro the, uh, linear, mm. neuro typical, very opposite. To the right, we'll have the people who run the company. And then we need the more empathetic people because we need to have a human element. So they tend to be to the left. So you have to blend it. What you find out with companies that are very driven about innovation, exploration, discovery, they need a higher percentage of people who are in that sort of big thinking area, super thinkers. If you're a bank, you don't need that because you don't want it. You just want lots and lots of process people. So psychometric profiling is something we've tapped into recently a lot Mm. in actually looking at the skill sets and saying, how can we move more people into this area that will help solve problems? How can we give everybody the chance to be a problem solver? And if even the person accounts can become a little bit more, you know, switch over to more maybe neurodiverse thinking, they see a problem, they solve that problem, Mm. all those problems get solved. That company is going to be hugely more efficient and probably more Mm. innovative. And Mm. today, companies have to be more agile, Mm. more competitive. They have to, they cannot be laggards. You know, there are three kinds of companies. The laggards, which will fail. We've seen Mm. a lot of those go down. Those who are agile. Mm. Uh, and actually adapt, agile adapters, and then those which are basically mold breakers who are the new companies, the startups who come along and often steal. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. Disruptors, they steal a percentage of the market, you know, Mm. like they'll get the the market that's primed for that moment is toothpaste. (laughs) We have three laggard brands in the toothpaste defending the toothpaste market. Someone's going to come in the next five years and absolutely steal 15 to 25% of that market. I'm sure. I'm sure. And just as you were saying that, particularly, I suppose, with the bank example, I was trying to, um, you know, figure out, you know, what about the loyalty professionals in the bank? How neurodiverse, how dyslexically (laughs) should they be thinking? Like genuinely, because that's the challenge, you know? Well, I think, I mean, we've seen in the banking sector, there's two sides, isn't there? There's the traditional old school banks. Mm. And then there's the new startup banks, the neo banks. And they are certainly taking massively the younger generation. I mean, Gen Z are coming in. They have no loyalty to what their parents are loyal to. Yeah. You know, this this idea of trans of transferable loyalty isn't happening anymore. You know, more or not we'd buy what our parents bought, we'd vote for what our parents vote for. Yeah. That was probably true 20 years ago. It isn't true now. It's almost the opposite. So yeah. we're seeing among Gen Zs definitely a kind of I'm gonna go in a different direction. Mm. And we see most Gen Zs, when I asked about banking, most of them were working with, you know, things, you know, the new near banks, hardly any of them had a, had an old school yeah. bank yeah. account. And, the, and they, those organisations, the old ones, are so stuck in their ways. They yeah. have no ability to even start to rethink how they think about thinking, you know. <laughs> totally. Uh, I don't know how you're going to fix that one. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, they probably just not work with banks. <laughs> Totally, totally. So um, I'll ask you in a second now in terms of how people can access all of this type of um, all of these ideas that you've got and education about how to think differently, because uh, I do think it's important that we rethink how we think. But my final piece, just because we've been focusing on Gen Z, I just want to mention I love Seth Godin. I'm sure um, you've uh, followed a lot of his work as well along the way. My favorite marketeer. But he made a point in his blog recently that the next generation, like what, you know, should they be called Gen A just because we're back to the start of the alphabet? 
And actually he said, no, it should be Gen C. C for climate, C for COVID, C for community. So I thought you might like that because I do think we're going from Gen Z to Gen C. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that um, was super yeah, clever. Yeah, I think actually Gen C for clever as well. I think, you know, yeah. it does strike me that because they are very well informed, they're actually yeah. probably clever in many ways. Um, they're certainly very well educated. Totally. Um, not everybody. <laughs> but I, I think there's a lot of, you know, the people I deal with in, in university are very smart. And yeah. I think what is very interesting is we're seeing that, for example, kids coming from other countries probably got better education systems than we do in the UK. Wow. Um, I've got Great. some Indian uh, people and they are amazingly educated. You know, Super. I've had one Iranian girl and uh, Iran's got one of the best education systems in the world. Wow. Um, and so, you know, education around the world is really, really going up. I think UK is lagging behind and we're mm. very much lagging behind in creativity. We've yeah. actually got rid of a lot of our creativity in schools and it's now being outsourced. But I think we're seeing a cleverer generation. They're smarter, they're wiser, mm. they're more informed um, and they have that access of knowledge, yeah. which their parents and their and their parents did not have. So, okay. you know, I think probably add a seed to clever would be. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, listen, that's my final question, I guess. Um, was there any other point that you thought would be important to talk about today, Chris? Because it might be another two years before I catch up with you. So tell <laughs> us. <laughs> well, I, I, it's more an observation, actually. I've got, a, I've got two older kids, but I've got a six-year-old. And I've been looking very much at how six-year-olds get become very loyal to gaming and uh, and apps and things like that. And there's a lot of educational apps our kids are all doing. And it's yeah. very interesting watching the the simplicity, almost stripping it back to the rewards, you know, that even yeah. on something my son does think a word is. And he learned to read about just under a year ago. So he's, he's got a very wide vocabulary. And it's you get like a, a crossword and you get seven letters and you have to write how many words can you write with seven letters. And often it's up to 20. Wow. And he's very good at it. But for me, it's just I'll do the game and keep playing it. But for him, he loves the fact that every time he completes it, he gets points. Ooh, and, then, and every now yeah, and again, he can yeah. cash those points in for hints to how, you know, for cheats to how, you know, <laughs> well, they'll give you a letter here, give you a letter I there. I like that, yes. And it's very interesting because here we got a six-year-old, you're seeing how loyalty works at a very wow. simplistic reward level, you know, or, mm. you know, play, get a, an award, get that reward. You know, it's, it's a simple cycle. And yeah. It yeah. is very interesting to see that and how they're building that into education now. So mm -hmm. yeah. a friend of mine's daughter's just gone to secondary school mm -hmm. and they just adopted an American system, which is all based on loyalties, technology and thinking on how to get the kids working hard and staying on the subjects. You know, Incredible. it's all that kind of do, yeah. award, reward, you yeah. know. And so they actually, it's very interesting that we're seeing the, the philosophy of loyalty being yeah. used in some very positive ways, you know. Yeah. And again, I'll just refer back to a previous episode because we had one of the world's leading um, thinkers on gamification on the yep. show recently, Yu Kai Cho. And what he told us is he's been consulted by the government of UK Ukraine because they are literally considering that they have a blank sheet of paper that they can reinvent their education system using the principles of gamification. Yep. And that blew me away that, first of all, in yep. the depths of the war, they're already thinking to the next phase. So you're absolutely right. The mechanics and the work that we do as loyalty professionals, they're super powerful. So yeah. very inspiring to be thinking about all of the ways that we can use them going forward. Absolutely. So, and uh, and Ukraine's yeah. very interesting because they, they're completely rethinking everything. They're the only country yeah. that's gone uh, crowdfunding. <laughs> Incredible. 
You know, Absolutely. Um, so yeah. I think very, it's great because in a situation, it's made them rethink everything. Yeah. And they just, you know, then if you look at the battle, you know, you've got Russia and it's very neurolinear approach, process driven. And you've got Ukraine going, well, we've got an open campus. We can think in any which way. And it's great to see the fact that they're looking at things like that. You know, how can you use gamification and loyalty thinking in yeah. education? Brilliant. Fantastic. So listen, um, will you tell us where people can get in contact with you, Chris? Because I do think we're going to be provoking a lot of interest. Um, our audience is growing all of the time. So I'm sure there's plenty of people will want your perspectives, as, as I do, regularly on, on what's happening. So where's the best place for people to find you? Um, the best place to find me is probably on LinkedIn under Dr. Chris Arnold, because um, I'm a doctor of business. So I use it on there to separate myself. Um, yeah. We also, some people have accessed me through diversitylab.com, but that's spelled with a Y. DiversityLab.com, yeah, um, or Connect Two, which are also on or Creative Orchestra, so you have a choice. But probably LinkedIn's the best one to touch base with me on because yeah. you'll have a chance to see my profile, and I'm always happy to talk to people about new ways of thinking, how they can apply that to business and marketing. Wonderful, great, and again, we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. So after that super interesting uh, conversation, Dr. Chris Arnold, strategist, creative, and ethical marketing specialist from Connect Two and Diversity Lab. Thank you so much from Let's Talk Loyalty. Thank you, Paula. This show is sponsored by the Loyalty People, a global strategic consultancy with a laser focus on loyalty, CRM, and customer engagement. The loyalty people work with clients in lots of different ways, whether it's the strategic design of your loyalty program or a full service, including loyalty project execution. And they can also advise you on choosing the right technology and service partners. On their website, the Loyalty People also runs a free global community for loyalty practitioners. And they also publish their own loyalty expert insights. So for more information and to subscribe, check out theloyaltypeople.global. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like us to send you the latest shows each week, simply sign up for the Let's Talk Loyalty newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and we'll send our best episodes straight to your inbox. And don't forget that you can follow Let's Talk Loyalty on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And of course, we'd love for you to share your feedback and reviews. Thanks again for supporting the show.